Okay, we're uh, we're back at it. Many guys who aren't from Oklahoma, Bernie, you have no idea. We don't like them. It's personal. We got a logo too. We've been working on one for 18 years, and, and we want everybody in the country to know, with all due respect, we got a logo too. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I'm Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. Colby, we got a fun one today. We're going to do another Pistols Reloaded podcast, revisiting the 2011 Oklahoma State-Texas A&M football game. I put out a poll on Twitter. I put out a poll on the chamber. Uh, this game this game was the the winner, Colby. I, I kind of thought maybe 2008 Missouri would be the winner, but this this game really really sticks in people's minds from that 2011 season. Yeah, it does. This was the first conference game that I watched as a student. I was a freshman wow. in fall of 2011, and what a time. I mean, seriously, to, to arrive on campus to that football team, it was <laughs> it was an unbelievable way to spend my freshman year. I mean, we we did the whole thing, camping outside the stadium, um, all of it. It was, it was an unbelievable introduction to uh, college football as a 19-year-old. Yeah, that was a, a the best year uh, to be to be in college. Period. Let alone your first experience. It was, it was all downhill from there. Um, but I, I do want to before we get into everything. This this uh, episode's brought to you by Chris's University Spirit, of course, your one stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. Uh, I think they're putting out some jerseys nowadays with the new look uniforms. They're going to be be debuting this season, so you're going to want the latest greatest gear from from Chris's and. Be sure to stop by if you're in Stillwater. We appreciate them sponsoring the podcast as always. Colby, let's let me just set the scene for the listener. I'm sure most people remember this game. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, but you know, Oklahoma State, Colby, in 2010 was coming off uh, really an electric season, which could have been even better. They won 10 games. They they won the Alamo Bowl over Arizona. The Whedon to Blackman connection was firmly established the year prior, and expectations had really shifted for Oklahoma State. They had new uniforms. Uh, Whedon and Blackman were back. Uh, the, the stage was set, and you mentioned it. It's the first conference game of the year. They hadn't really played a whole lot of talented teams yet. It's a top-10 matchup. Oklahoma State was ranked 7th at 4-0. Texas A&M was ranked 8th at 2-0, so they were even less experienced in, in big-time football games. But um, Colby just – this was the real first test of, okay, coming off of that 2010 season, here we go. You're on the road. OSU had struggled in road environments under Mike Gunny's tenure, uh, but a huge opportunity for Oklahoma State going down to College Station. What do you yeah. remember leading up to that game, I guess? Um, I remember the Tulsa game, number one. I remember being up until 4.30 in the morning uh, watching that. I remember that uh, Greg Spencer was going through it. He had lost his wife. Glenn, Glenn Spencer. Pardon me. Pardon me. I apologize. Greg, isn't Greg Spencer a D-line coach? I'm thinking of Greg Richmond. Never mind. Carry yeah, on. I don't, I, don't, I don't know where I came up with Greg. Uh, Glenn Spencer was going through it. His, his wife had passed after some uh, health issues and heart problems the week before. They, they didn't think that he'd be making the trip to College Station. Um, he did. And, and reading back on some old stuff, Justin Gilbert talked about how impactful that was. Uh, for everybody that he was able to be there with them, despite all that he was going through. And um, yeah, I, I remember this being kind of the, I don't want to call it a make or break game being the first conference game of the season, but I think everybody knew that this Oklahoma state team had the potential to be special, but when you open conference play on the road at college station matchup of two top 10 teams, it was the first matchup of two top 10 teams at Kyle field since 1975 Carson. Wow. Um, 
I mean, this was kind of the game. You go down there and lose this, your expectations get reset for the season a little bit. You win it, and you start talking about national championship stuff, Big 12 championship, BCS. Uh, so, yeah, I, I remember this game had huge implications for both sides as to where the expectations would be for the rest of the season. Yeah, it's important to note the Glenn Spencer element. Um, Spencer was not expected to be in College Station, but he jetted home from the funeral in Georgia and with his two sons uh, made the trip to A&M, and he played a major role in the victory, helping the right, helping write the defense at halftime. And there's a great quote from Markel Martin uh, saying, quote, I don't believe we were expecting to have him at that game. He came down at halftime. He and his boys were there in the locker room, and he gave us a sense of purpose. It was in that moment that you saw this, that this was still important to him, to see him and realize the importance of that game. It was huge. Uh, and I think, Colby, you know, halftime is really what, what swung this game. We, If you go back and rewatch it like you and I did, I mean, just about everything that go wrong in the first half did. You got Mike Gundy kicking field goals, which we'll get to. You've got Tannehill scoring on a long run on the first series of the of the game. Uh, but this game was really about halftime and a team that really never wavered, never flinched, never blinked. And what, what happened in the second half, Colby, was simply remarkable. I mean, they scored, what, 27 straight points. Uh, Brandon Whedon set the school record with 438 yards. He also set the school record for completions with 47 and attempts, 60. Uh, Todd Munkin, his halftime adjustments were a huge storyline, but Really, Colby, this is this is a rewatch, and you almost want to just start the game at, after the after the first half, don't you? Yeah, that's uh, you're not wrong. When I was watching this game, I watched the entire first half, and uh, complete boredom set in as I watched the first half. It's like, all right, let's let's get to the action, and then that third <laughs> quarter was just unbelievable. But yeah, it was all about halftime. Um, whatever they said in that room, I mean, that first half was seriously. If y'all go rewatch this game. First half's a tough watch. It's boring. It's all A&M. Everything's coming up A&M. Justin Blackman's frustrated. He's, you know, he wants the ball on the outside. He's storming off to the sidelines, throwing his hands up in the air uh, at, at one point in that first half. The first half was really unwatchable, and the second half was really <laughs> rewatchable. So uh, maybe watch the the first half on like one and a half, two times speed, the way you listen to podcasts, and uh, that'll be a better way to experience the first 30 minutes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, I was at this game. I was covering it for uh, KOCO Channel 5. Uh, my first year at Channel 5, Colby, much like your first year in college, my first year at Channel 5 was 2011. And just as luck would have it, they had a lot of ABC games. And when that occurred, I would go on the road with whoever was on ABC. And so I ended up covering virtually every OSU football game other than maybe at one or two in the non-conference. I wasn't at that Tulsa game, and I and I definitely wasn't in Ames when they lost to Iowa State. But uh, I was at this game. I uh, went out with, with my man Mark Rogers the night before. Kind of an interesting OSU tie-in here. Uh, Glenn Cyprian and Kyle Keller were on Texas A&M's basketball staff at the time. And so I went out with Mark Rogers and those guys, and, man, they were telling some great Victor Williams stories, you know, stories from – Oklahoma State basketball history that it was it was really an awesome night which should have been an omen for me that I was about to witness a game that I simply will never forget but I, I will say Colby I, I was a little worse for the wear uh, for this game uh, if I recall it was a was it a morning game or was it afternoon I might have been a might have been 11 a.m kick I can't recall no it's a it was 2 30 kick so I was, I was still a little worse for the wear at 2 30 believe it or not uh, yeah, I imagine you were. And it was hot down there, too. It was late September. This was the first conference game. They threw the temperature up at one point. It was like 94. 
uh, I think, which obviously on the field is going to feel a lot hotter than that. And then you're surrounded by all of those crazy Aggies. Um, yeah, that would have been a tough one to go out the night before and then have to cover this game. But at least you didn't have to power through it to cover a clunker. You hit the jackpot. If you missed Tulsa, which didn't kick off until almost one in the morning, and you missed Iowa State, which was, to me, the darkest day in Oklahoma State sports history, um, boy, you really hit the jackpot on your travel schedule that year. Well, I mean, shoot, Boone Pickens should have been paying me to go to all the games. They wouldn't have lost. I was also at the Fiesta Bowl comeback win. So I was their good luck charm that year. Uh, there were some great moments throughout that season. I was at the the road game against Missouri. And what's interesting was you're, when you're on the road with a team like Oklahoma State, they're, like it's basically the team, the coaches, and then like the the handful of media that, that follows them around on the road. It's almost kind of a – it almost makes – you kind of not part of the team, but you're like, you're kind of getting yelled at and booed with them when you're with them. So it's, it was kind of very interesting dynamic and it's something that uh, was really special in my career. I'll always circle that 2011 years. It was probably one of the best in my career just because it was so much fun. All, they had so many characters on this team. I mentioned Brandon Whedon, Joseph Randall was really fun to talk to Jeremy Smith as well. Uh, Josh Cooper, who I still know today, Justin Blackman, Hubert Anyam was big in this game. Tracy Moore, uh, Justin Gilbert, Broderick Brown, a lot of a lot of names folks recognize. And, and for A and M, you had Ryan Tannehill at quarterback, still playing in the NFL. Christine Michael, a uh, name from the past. Cyrus Gray, Ryan Swope had 100 yards receiving. So those are some of the cast and characters Colby setting up. What was a a really memorable game. So uh, you ready to get to categories? Anything else before we get to the categories? Uh, yeah, no, just touching on all the nostalgia, throwing out these names. That's what I've really gotten from these two rewatches that we've done so far. The nostalgia is strong when you go back and watch these old games. Yep, I agree. Uh, it's it doesn't seem that long ago, but shoot, 2011. I mean, that's that's a long time now. Uh, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. But let's start with uh, the most rewatchable sequence of the game. Uh, I've got several candidates, but uh, let's just go through them one by one, Colby, instead of just listing them all off. Uh, I got the start of the second half. Just the the clear adjustment that OSU and Todd Munkin and Brandon Whedon made uh, was was really, it's like night and day. They basically said, you know what? We're not able to run the football off tackle with Joseph Randall. We're not able to block him up front. They have they have too many guys in the box. And they really started spreading it out. And um, I have an interesting quote here from, from Brandon Whedon on just the numbers mismatch. And if you watch it, they've got trips to most sides on the top of the screen most of the time, just completely outnumbering them. And here was Brandon Whedon and, and Todd Munkin's thoughts on um, on what they were doing to start the second half. This is, we're not even a minute in, and, and you can tell if you slow it down. I mean, these guys are having a hard time getting lined up. It's, if you can count to three, you can play quarterback. You know, we have our three guys versus only their two. So the next next guy that can make a play is this guy that's in the box. So if I hand the ball off here, there's a bunch of dudes over here, you know, so easily just spit it out to Josh. And now we got two on two, and now it just becomes a kick return. So very simple. I mean, it's just a numbers game. Do they have enough numbers to stop us? If not, kick it out there. And it's just, again, an extension of our run game and kind of a staple for what we did. Yeah, it's a simple numbers game. Three versus two wins every time. But Colby, just the, the start of the second half and just the way they were just moving the ball up and down the field on A&M was, was really that was my first most rewatchable sequence, just how quickly they were snapping the ball, keeping A&M on their heels. It was, it was like watching a, you know, a, a fast, fast break offense working. Yeah. The, the first half was so boring and just nothing happened for Oklahoma state um, really on either side of the ball. They were, they were struggling to stop A&M as well. They come out in the second half and you felt a shift 
right? You, you felt it on that first drive of the third quarter because I think the first drive of that third quarter was wholly important for Oklahoma State. If you go out and you maybe go three and out, get one first down, you have to punt it back to A&M. Now all of a sudden your defense is on the field down 20 to three in the third quarter. That starts to feel a little bit different. And instead the tide flipped very quickly. A um, lot of stuff in the quick passing game, the outside passing game. Like you said, A&M had guys in the box and Oklahoma State was able to exploit that in the second half. And that to me the third quarter was the Oklahoma State offense that we came to know and love in 2011 that was just borderline unstoppable. Uh, Monken was doing everything right. Whedon made all the right reads. I, I don't think that it can even be stated enough how impressive it is to throw the ball 60 times in a game and not put it in harm's way. Not only did he not turn it over, I mean, I watched this game, and there weren't – I mean, I'm trying to think off the top of my head – there were not many opportunities even for interceptions to be had or, or for him to fumble in the pocket as he's going down or anything like that. He was so solid with the ball. Uh, Josh Cooper, Hubert Anium on the outside, a lot of, lot of stuff from those guys in the quick passing route. Three receivers in this game, at least double-digit receptions for Oklahoma State with Josh Cooper, Justin Blackman, and Hubert Anium. Um, Car- Carson, is it a cop-out? for me to call the entire third quarter the most rewatchable sequence because the whole quarter start to finish um, is really just pretty incredible football. And it didn't all come up orange because the Blackman fumble out of the end zone did happen in the third quarter. So am I copping out if I call the entire third quarter, the most rewatchable sequence? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think it's, it's hard to, it's hard to just narrow it down to a single play, a single moment. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you a third quarter, but you mentioned the the three receivers with at least 10 catches. That's the first time in school history that's happened. And it's clear. And, and as Whedon kind of had said in that video, and again, you can watch that. That's courtesy OSU athletics. You can go on YouTube and watch that. It's Brandon Whedon and Dave Hunzak are sitting down and, and kind of doing what we're doing, rewatching the second half essentially. And he basically said that he goes, this is a called run play. He goes, and I had the option to just throw it out there. And so it's clear, Colby, that that Whedon was kind of him and Munkin together, but he was kind of just reading the defense and just throwing it out there. And it led to, you know, 47 completions, three different guys with 10 catches. Um, another rewatchable sequence that I had was the Tracy Moore touchdown in the back of the end zone sticks with me, which leads directly into the Broderick Brown diving interception, which those are two guys, Colby, that don't get mentioned enough. Um, probably in OSU history. Tracy Moore was a, just a, a tremendous receiver for a long time. Uh, not not of the ilk of the Tylen Wallaces and and certainly Justin Blackman's, but that was a huge touchdown, one of the highlights of the year, back of the end zone, first time OSU takes the lead, leads directly into the Broderick Brown interception, which was a, a kind of a, a huge swing moment there, Colby, because this defense really, really stands on its head and, and really kind of goes and wins the game for them with all the turnovers they got. Yeah, the Tracy Moore touchdown was big. He only had three catches in the game, but that was a good one. Whedon had to to fit that in over some linebackers, uh, and it was kind of over, over his head, and he was able to just barely get that right foot down before his left hand came down out of bounds. So that was a great play. I, I think the ancillary receivers on these, this team, I mean, everybody remembers Justin Blackman. You should remember Justin Blackman. He is, for my money and yours as well, the best receiver in the history of college football. But Josh Cooper, Hubert Anium, 
Um, Tracy Moore, those guys were really good. Um, I know, I know Kai Staley played a different position, but he was, he was great coming out of the backfield from time to time throughout that season. So there were a lot of, I think, unsung heroes on this offense, especially at receiver, because it's so easy to forget, get forgotten behind a guy like Justin Blackman. Uh, that touchdown was big. The Broderick Brown diving interception Broderick, I think his name gets brought up a little bit more than some others, but I think a lot of that has to do with the one play in the Bedlam game where he jumps out of bounds and throws it back into Sean Lewis. Uh, I think that play gets him mentioned more, but how great of a corner he was and how impactful he was for this 2011 defense that was just the turnover squad cannot be overstated. He was uh, unbelievable. He was a lockdown corner. You had a young Justin Gilbert on the other side who just kind of followed in Broderick Brown's footsteps. Um, yeah, that that defense, those corners, they were so fun to watch. Yeah, Broderick Brown, the bulldog, they called him. He's a little guy, but, man, he he played big. So uh, he was a huge part in this game, and, and Bill Young's defense was as well. Uh, one more rewatchable sequence I had before we uh, before we open it to you. Uh, James Thomas is basically game-winning interception. They started calling him Big Game James because he came up with so many timely <laughs> turnovers for OSU that year. Uh, leads directly into the, the Justin Blackman running out of the end zone to end the game. One of the weirdest endings to a college football game I can remember. I mean, I was I was making my way down from the press box and didn't know what happened. I just saw that all of a sudden they had a one-point lead, and I'm like, wait a second. How are they only up by one? What, what just occurred? And someone said Blackman ran out of the end zone. I had no idea what had happened. And I, I pulled up an old article from Scott Wright of the Oklahoman a few years ago as though she was about to play A&M in, in a bowl game just with Spencer Sanders and the guys. It said uh, OSU led uh, by three points on a scorching hot September day. Uh, they needed to burn off the final five seconds off the clock on a fourth down play from their own 39-yard line. Punting seemed like a bad option. Kneeling the ball wouldn't take long enough. So what then? What were they going to do? Quote from Mike Gundy. Everyone had an opinion. My gosh. <laughs> Amid the chaos, the coach spoke his mind. Look, just put it in Blackman's uh, – just put Blackman back there and snap it to him. He's the best player on the field. And let him run out of the end zone. A voice replied, well, what if he falls? Gundy, he's not going to fall. Another voice, well, he's <laughs> never caught a snap from under center. I don't care. He can catch anything. Yet another voice, well, we'll lose 40 yards in rushing. Gundy, I don't care about that either. <laughs> so this was uh, apparently Gundy's uh, Gundy's idea, and it, and it worked, Colby, if not you know, one of the strangest ways to end a game, certainly exhilarating because – when you rewatch this, I, I forgot this. He Blackman runs out of the end zone and runs straight into a a group of OSU fans in the end zone. Like how, I, I've had people sending me pictures from being at this game. Imagine being that group of fans with Blackman running right to you to celebrate. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, no doubt about it. Are you saying that you like that strategy better than the line somebody up out wide and have your quarterback throw it fifty yards out of bounds? Slightly better than the Central Michigan decision. Yes, I would have gone with that one for sure. Yeah. Too soon, too soon. I shouldn't have brought it up. Yeah, uh, too soon. No, the end of the game was great. You mentioned the James Thomas interception, and I just want to use that moment to laud Broderick Brown even further because the ball ended up in James Thomas's hands, but that was another Broderick Brown play. He's going against a much bigger receiver, uh, Kyle Fuller out there, I think it was. Uh, Jeff Fuller, pardon me, Jeff Fuller out there. And he he is on his back foot so that he can stay with him if he goes deep. But as soon as Fuller stops, he stops, he comes back, he gets his arm in there, bats the ball into the air, and it winds up in the hands of James Thomas. So that was uh, definite teamwork there from Broderick Brown and James Thomas. Um, yeah, and then Blackman running out of the end zone. I remember watching this game live 
And he comes out. You were on your way down from the press box, so you, so you didn't see it live. In that moment, I, I even kind of remember thinking, okay, nothing can go wrong here, right? But we're ingrained as Oklahoma State fans with this what can go wrong here kind of mentality. And I was so nervous that something could have gone bad there. I didn't like punting. I didn't, li- I didn't like any of the other options. And in hindsight, obviously, that was the best option. But as an Oklahoma State fan, I just I had to be nervous until the clock was triple zeros and Oklahoma State was still one point ahead. Yeah, like I think everyone in the stands, if you watch, if you rewatch it, everyone's I think everyone kind of looks around like, wait, is that is that the end of the game? Did that's only two points, right? That's not we're not tied here, are we? Like everyone kind of had a sense of like kind of shock that 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 that's the way the game ended. But um, anything, any more rewatchable sequences for you? Uh, I think that that's I think that that's most of it. I I will say, I think the Blackman fumble is is pretty rewatchable like it's well i've i've got that on um i've got that on what's age the worst okay let's keep going then let's keep going yeah, let's let's do what's age the best how about that uh for me number one colby just the halftime adjustments i i can't say enough good things about todd munkin and we mentioned it colby they threw it 60 times you have to know and i mean have to know Mike Gundy was on that headset telling Todd Munkin to run the football and Todd Munkin probably let back a few expletives and said, no, we're going to let we air it out. And I wish I remembered this more for all the podcasts you and I have done, Colby, when we, when you and I are just sitting there going, why can't they just throw the ball? They, they can't run the ball. Why don't you just spread them out, get some space and go to work. And this game, this second half rather, is the perfect, um, perfect synopsis of that strategy. Just amazing. Yeah, it, it was unbelievable the way they were able to use the passing game in the second half. Whedon throws for 438 yards in this one. Um, yeah, the passing game was unbelievable. For me, age the best. I went very specific on this. Early in the fourth quarter, a little more than 13 minutes ago, Ryan Swope catches a pass across the middle, and Markel Martin lowers the boom. Hits yes, him hard. I remember this part. Flag comes in. Now, re-watching it, I mean, I watched it a few times because I wanted to make sure before I voiced this opinion that, that I was seeing what I was seeing. They showed replays. I got a good look at it. It was a hard hit. If you want to call it unsportsmanlike conduct, which they did, that's fine. But what I think has aged the best is that that hit, which was a football play over the middle of the field, did not get Markel Martin ejected from that game and suspended for the first half the following week against Kansas, which is what would have happened um, had he done that post-targeting rule. I think that the intent of the targeting rule is great. I continue to harp on the um, the way it has been utilized in college football. I, I think it's poorly uh, officiated. There's no consistency to it, and it seriously changes games. And I say games plural because guys missing the first half of the next game uh, is crazy whenever there's no intent, and it's just a a football play that happens fast. One guy lowers his head. Things happen on a football field, and watching that back and seeing Markel Martin penalized 15 yards but not ejected really made me uh, rue the targeting rule even more. That's a good way to look at it. For me, I, I thought it was a soft flag. I mean, obviously he kind of stands over the guy, but and that's what got him the sportsman unsportsmanlike. But you're right. Like I think I think the the targeting was necessary for player safety, but it, it's really ruined 
the rewatchability of a lot of games with all the reviews and, and the, what you said, guys getting kicked out of games when they only get 12 opportunities every single year. It's uh it's crime. Uh, that was a great, great hit and reminded me just how much Markel Martin was, was crucial to this team and how much he could lower the boom. Uh, so Markel Martin's age the best as well. Uh, for me also, Colby, Whedon to Blackman. I mean, it's just, it's like two grown adults going out to an eighth grade practice and just manhandling people. I mean, not only does Whedon have all day to throw back there. I mean, that, the offensive line just gave him just hours to throw the football, but they couldn't even like get close to covering Blackman. Like they're, how many contested catches did Justin Blackman have in this game? Very, very, very few. And it was just a, 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 a very sharp reminder to me, Colby, just how devastating those two were, how it didn't matter what your plan was. There is no plan for a receiver that big, that fast, that good at running routes, and a quarterback with that arm. There just there was nothing AM could do. They, they, had, they had no answers. And just, man, they were so good together. Yeah, I could watch Justin Blackman run routes all day long. He's just, I don't know how you, I don't know how anybody ever stuck with the guy. And they really didn't. I mean, that's why he was so unbelievable. Uh, he could make the contested catches whenever he need to, but normally he had three yards of separation because he was such a good route runner. He he wasn't Tyreek Hill fast, but he was football fast. Like the dude in, in full pads, making cuts, getting to where he needs to be, where, where the football is going to be. The dude was fast. And rewatching this game just reminded me how special Justin Blackman was and and that even the best receivers in Oklahoma State history, I still just think that he stands out ahead above. Um, and, and the fact that he had Whedon throwing to him didn't hurt at all. You know, you got a, a 35-year-old back there at quarterback who can sling it 100 miles an hour and put it on the money. Um, yeah, Whedon to Blackman was so much fun. And I, I don't think that we took it for granted as it was happening. I think we knew how special it was. And even still, I, I find myself wishing uh, we could just watch one more Weedon to Blackman game. Do you know who I always compared Justin Blackman to? And again, he's the best receiver in college football history. There's there's no doubt the numbers back it up, the eye test backs it up. But do you know who I always kind of compared him to? It's not a receiver. Hmm, not a receiver. I don't know. Hit me. He is Adrian Peterson if he mm -hmm. played wide receiver. I Good mean, one. that's similar body they're both taller six they're both about six foot maybe six one uh built like you know a greek god uh just run you know adrian peterson was a huge back and nobody ever caught him and same with blackman see when he was gone nobody nobody's catching him and it's just it's freaky to see a guy that size move like that uh built like that and it's like adrian peterson with larry fitzgerald's hands is probably the best way i can describe Justin Blackman, and that was on full display because AM just had no answers. Um, Bill Young, uh, as age the best for me, his turnover machine defense. I mean, as much as we talk about Whedon and Blackman, Colby, the, the turnovers what won this game for OSU. Uh, Justin Blackman, or sorry, not Justin Blackman, uh, Justin Gilbert had one. And as Jay Bessinger pointed out on Twitter, that Dion Amade still hasn't let him go about that. He, he thinks that interception was stolen from him by Justin Gilbert. But uh, they they forced what four turnovers in this game and really really won the won the game for OSU by getting stops. 
Uh, yeah, no, they definitely did. Um, that third quarter, you come out and you need to make something happen whenever you're down 20 to three at halftime. And Texas A&M just made all the mistakes. The first one, Dayton Lowe. I mean, you talk about hat on football. That was just helmet to ball. Broderick Brown diving and Justin Gilbert. The the way that he picked that ball off. Now maybe Dion would have been there. Maybe Dion would have gotten it. I don't know. But Justin Gilbert was in his zone, <laughs> sitting out there in the flat, and he just saw Ryan Tannehill's eyes drifting up the sideline, and Justin Gilbert decided, I'm going to drift with him. And he just fell right underneath it, uh, scooped it up. And a, a young Justin Gilbert was fun to watch. Um, I, I don't even know, because he was so young and there were so many other guys on this team who were bigger names at the time, Sean Lewis, Broderick Brown, Markel Martin, Rashetti Jones. Like, I guess I don't necessarily, in my memory, I didn't have Justin Gilbert as this huge impact player on the 2011 defense, uh, but he was, and, and that was a big play that he made. And then the, the finally the interception by James Thomas there at the end on the play by Broderick Brown. Four second-half interceptions, uh, pardon me, four second-half turnovers, three of which were interceptions. That's the difference in the game. They went by a point with four second-half turnovers, um, and they, they might have needed all four. Even the James Thomas interception, Texas A&M had just gone down and scored. They could have just as easily done it again. All four were hugely crucial. Yep, absolutely huge. Justin Gilbert was a sophomore that year. And um, this game, I was up in the press box, and I caught a glimpse of of um, Justin Gilbert. And I put on Twitter that if there was a uniform Heisman Award, number four, Justin Gilbert would win it. And that was the the spawning of the term uni, uni Heisman. Oh, okay. Uh, Kyle Porter had just started pistols firing in 2011. A lot of things began in 2011. Your college career pistols firing and this game is really when Kyle Porter and I kind of became friends really on on Twitter he thought that was funny and would retweet it I thought what his, his writing about the games were hilarious uh, that's kind of how he and I became friends was was really throughout this game maybe a little bit before but not much because he had just started the website uh, so what's age the best for me uniform Heisman uh, it's still going today uh, we still hand that out um, that's one how about I thought the ending has aged the best. Blackman running to the fans, which we talked about. Running to the fans was a cool deal. Uh, and last one for me, Colby. This was the first game Mike Gundy danced in the locker room. Do you remember this? Oh, no, I didn't realize this was the first one. I think this is the one where he drops real low with his hand behind his back and, like, does the thrusting with his hand behind his back. I think oh, this no, was I, the this I, was I the first Gundy the dance. Yeah, I remember the dance move. I just didn't remember that this was the game. I, I don't think I could forget the dance move if I wanted to. So I, I got to say Gundy dancing in the locker room's age is the best, Colby, because, you know, Mike, as I've said many times on this show and people that think I am too critical of Mike Gundy, listen up. Mike Gundy does not get enough credit for being a trailblazer in many, many different facets when it comes to college football. And one of the main ones, every single coach now wants to dance in the locker room. Well, who did it first? Who made it a thing? Mike Gundy. So that's age is the best for me. Uh, it, That was kind of... He was Ted Lasso before Ted Lasso. Yes. I mean, Ted Lasso copied Mike Gundy. That's that's a fact. Right down to the visor. The opening scene of Ted Lasso doesn't happen without Mike Gundy. Uh, Mike Gundy <laughs> was, he, look, he was a player's coach. By the way, seeing young Mike Gundy on the sideline with his spiked hair and his, I don't even know what style sunglasses those are, the Gundy style sunglasses, I guess. Oh, please, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a throwback for Mike Gundy, too. I, I couldn't believe how much younger he looked uh, and just how much different the hair is. Most coaches, I feel like um, the hair is just kind of there. It just kind of exists. It's not a part of the coaching persona. I feel like the, the hair has always been a part of the Gundy persona. 
Yeah, a lot, lot of product back in those days, keeping it straight up in the air. And uh, anything else, age the best for you before we get to what's age the worst? No, I actually, I jumped the gun on what age the worst. I've got my Gundy spiked hair here. So much product. <laughs> So much gel. It's 94 degrees. And that hair didn't move once, Carson. It was concrete. Um, well, and I've never understood. I've never understood why he wears. He doesn't wear the visor the entire game. He has a headset on. And then as soon as the game's over, he takes that headset off. He has to put the, the visor on. It's almost like he thought his hair got messed up from the from the headset. And Mike, th there's no way that hair's getting messed up with that much gel in there. He's got great hair, too. He doesn't need to hide the hair. This isn't a George Costanza situation where he can't take his Indiana Jones hat off. Like, he's got great hair. Just own it. Uh, yes, I, I could not believe. Whenever I saw his hair, I was like, oh, man. All of us, anybody who was spiking the hair uh, 10, 15 years ago, it, it does not age well. You know what else doesn't age well for Mike Gundy? Rewatching this game and, and his coaching decisions. Uh, I just, Colby, as I was watching this, I kept thinking, man, I'm going to get a text in all caps from, from Colby rewatching this because it starts out early. Uh, one of their first scoring, one of their first scoring drives, he settles, they run third and 11 off tackle, third and 11 first quarter. They run off tackle to Joe Randall. It goes nowhere. They settle for a field goal deep inside the red zone. The most egregious one when they're, when they're just They've got AM on their absolute heels. They've got them sucking wind. They can't stop a thing that they're trying to do. They throw one of those one of those million passes they've thrown to the flat to Blackman, who gets tackled on the one. I thought they could have, you know, nowadays that gets reviewed about a hundred times. I think he might have scored. Hey, real quick, real quick. I think the reason he got tackled at the one, I think he could have jumped that defender and extended the ball. I think he was nervous, Carson, to extend the ball because of the fumble out of the end zone in the previous quarter. Oh, that's a great point. That had to be why. I still thought he scored anyway, but they're on the one-yard line, maybe one-inch line, and my gunny kicks an 18-yard field goal. I mean, Colby, this game, OSU should have won this game by at least, and I mean at least, two touchdowns. And my gunny did everything in his power to ensure it was a three-point game with five seconds left. Uh, yeah, so you got the field goals covered. I wrote down a couple of egregious hunting decisions. One from Mike Gundy uh, and one from A&M. Second quarter, eight minutes to go in the second quarter, Oklahoma State trails 17 to three. They are struggling to get going offensively and A&M is moving the ball. You need to make something happen. You need a shift. You've got the best offense in school history. Fourth and four from the A&M 40, Carson, the 40. They punted it into the end zone, and Texas A&M took over at the 20. I think it took them three plays to get back out uh. at the 40. I e Even by 2011 standards, I thought that was a bad punt. And then what does A&M do? They return the favor in the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, a little under 12 minutes to go, Oklahoma State's up 27 to 20. A&M has not scored in the second half. They need something to flip momentum. They can't stop Oklahoma State, so what's it matter if they get it at the 40 or the 10? And what do they do? Fourth and five from the OSU 40-yard line, and they punt the football. <laughs> even, even by 2011 standards, what are y'all doing? It's the 40. Go try to get five yards. It was uh that's so bad. Well, Mike Sherman was the coach of AM and he came from the NFL. So he, he was still coaching it like he was coaching like the Green Bay Packers on a on a week four game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, apparently, I, I don't know. I 
I was beside myself watching the punts. I, I think that Gundy's might be more defensible because it was in the second quarter. So it's so, so early in the game. You can make the argument that you don't want to take a risk and give them field position near midfield. And, and it was um, the, the field position in battle in the first half was won massively by Texas A&M. So maybe that's what he was thinking. Punt goes into the end zone. It doesn't work. But for A&M to do it trailing in the fourth quarter, and you'd already been outscored 24 to nothing at this point in the, fourth, in, in the second half. I could not believe that Mike Sherman ran the punt unit out there. Yeah, I couldn't either. That was that was horrible. And I, I've got more thoughts on Gundy's coaching later on in other categories. Any uh, uniforms for me age pretty terribly. Those gray helmets are hideous. I thought it was kind of cool back in the day when I when I saw it in person, but just because I was so used to seeing boring uniforms from OSU. But those uh, those matte gray helmets did not age very well. Uh, no, they did not. The the grays. In general, uh, I think you know my stance on the Grays. By the way, real quick, uh, I texted Dion Amade. Uh, we went to school together, and, and I said, 2011 A&M, if Gilbert doesn't pick that ball off, are you getting it, or does the receiver catch it? And he replied, two words, pick six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not, I'm he sure he's still, he obviously still thinks about that. I'm, Gilbert stepped in front of him. It's very clear. I mean, he he probably was already deciding what to do when he scored, like end zone dance, you know, spike it. You know, he he'd already he already counted the six in his head. I'm sure. Uh, that's funny. Uh, He's a great guy. If, if y'all don't listen to him on uh, on Learfield doing stuff with Dave and John, you're missing out. He does great work. Yep, Dion's great. Uh, known him for a long time as well. Uh, one more age of the worst for me: Texas A&M. Uh, this season, 2011, they were a top 10 team. They ended up losing six games, including the very next week to Arkansas. So A&M went full A&M. So they didn't age very well in 2011. Uh, yeah, not so much. Um, I want to talk a little Tannehill, but but I'll find a, a spot later to do it on, on one of these other uh, categories. You got a, okay. you got a what if? Yeah, I got, I got a few greatest what ifs. Um, I think this is where we need to talk about Justin Blackman. Uh, fumbling out of the end zone. I, I had that on which age the worst as well. Let's talk about it here. I mean, it was 24 to 20 at that point. He scores there. It makes it 31 20. I mean, if he walks into the end zone as he was about to Colby and for people that haven't watched this game in a while, Justin Blackman catches a pass over the middle. He's running to the corner of the end zone. Just going to walk, just going to walk in. And as he shifts the ball to his main hand just to hold it one-handed, it pops out and goes out of the end zone for a touchback. And he knew as that ball was was rolling through the end zone, he knew what had just happened. He he dives for it head first. It's really an athletic dive just to try to get there. And he just lays on the ground for a, for a minute or two, it felt like. And Colby, if, if he scores there, it's 31-20. A&M wasn't stopping him. This is blowout city. So as much as I got on to Mike Gundy for his coaching decisions, uh, what if for me is Blackman scores there, how, how bad does it get? How bad does the blowout get? Or we, do we even remember this game as much? Yeah, that's a good point. You, you still might if you're down 20 to three at halftime, you end up winning by three touchdowns or something crazy like that. But rewatching it again, I was blown away by just what a boneheaded play it was by, by such an elite player. It's a, it's a mistake that you can't make. But, but look at it this way, Carson. What if... Oklahoma State loses this game. How do we look back at that play? Justin Blackman, I mean, that's that's the whole magical 2011 season coming undone on September 24th. Like, I couldn't believe re-watching it, how big of an error that was. It's like the one on-field mistake that he made his final two seasons at Oklahoma State, and it could have cost them 
a, a hugely crucial game that ended up leading to a Big 12 championship uh, and what should have been a national championship ended up being a Fiesta Bowl victory. But even watching it back, Carson, I was just dumbfounded. I, I, he, was, he was hot-dogging it a little bit. He was showboating. He was going to run into the end zone. He was going to put the ball in one hand so that he could trot in. And I, it looked like it bounced off his thigh and went out the end zone. Um, he was unbelievable. But, but just what a dumbfounding mistake. Obviously one that he never made again. He did lay face first over there after he did it, but I I was impressed by um, the, let's call it the composure to stand up, run back to the sideline, clap, let everybody know we're okay. We're dominating them. We missed out on this one. That's my fault, but we're okay. I thought that way that he handled it was really good, but I watching it back, I still can't believe it even happened. No, it, it was shocking in the moment. I mean, the press box just was like, that really just happened? Like, did he really, did he fumble? Did what, like, we thought something weird happened because we're, you know, we're up sitting up higher. And the last part of my greatest what if is it, it still involves this play because, yes, they went on to win by one point. Um, this ended up looking horrible on paper because what happened, Colby, in 2011? They missed out on the national championship game to Alabama. If you go on the road and beat A&M by 21, who at the time was a top 10 team, that's that's certainly a bigger argument than a narrow one-point win to a team that ended up losing six games that was ranked in the top 10 at the time. Uh, at this, at the end of the year, Colby, they, the committee looks back and is like, well, A&M lost six times. You beat them by one point on the road. Not that impressive. So, like, especially in this era with the BCS, that absolutely mattered. Now, it may not have mattered anyway, and probably didn't, because it's Alabama football helmet argument you and I have made a million times. But, man, this is why you don't kick 18-yard field goals. This is why you don't fumble out of the end zone like that. Uh, all that matters. And that's that's probably my greatest what-if, Colby, is if Blackman runs that in, I think they win by two or three touchdowns, and, and their resume looks even better than it already was. Yeah, I hadn't even considered the resume element of it. And that's that's a good point because uh, that stuff matters, especially in that BCS era. That stuff matters. So, uh, yeah, that's a good one. My, my what if that I've got listed here, what if Brandon Whedon got drafted into a good situation? I know that he was coming into to the NFL at an older age, but there is just simply no place worse than he could have gone than Cleveland at that time. This was nope. before Cleveland – made a an organizational shift to bring in a general manager that knew what he was doing to build up front on both lines, D-line, O-line, stuff that, that Cleveland has started doing in the last five years. This was before all that. This is when they were floating around as a franchise that had no idea what they were doing. Brandon Whedon gets there. I, I've talked to um, – I don't want to say his name, but I talked to somebody who knew what was happening in Cleveland, said that they weren't even getting the plays in in time, that that Brandon Whedon was like the, the mic cuts out with 15 seconds left on the play clock. They weren't even getting the plays in in time. The whole thing was a complete disaster. Look, Brandon Whedon flopped in the NFL. I get it. I, I don't know if going somewhere else would have made him some huge success, but I do think situation matters in the NFL. I've say, I think we've seen it with a ton of players over the years, not just Brandon Whedon. And the fact that he went to that franchise at that point in time left him little to no chance to succeed. Uh, and I just, I hate that. Completely agree. I covered Brandon's uh, NFL draft watch party at his house. He was obviously thrilled to go in the first round. Uh, at that point, you don't care where you go. You got picked in the first round. But I'm in complete agreement. Cleveland is – they were the biggest joke in professional sports at the time. They had won like 
two games in two years. I mean, they were horrendous. And I also think Brandon was a little ahead of his time, Colby, in that, you know, let's just look at Justin Herbert now. When he gets drafted to the Chargers, what's he doing? What offense is he running? He's running a wide open, pass first, spread style offense. Like the, the game has totally changed in the NFL where they're running spread concepts. And Whedon was asked to take the snaps under center. He didn't do that at all. They, they didn't even run the victory formation under center when Brandon was at OSU. Square so peg, I think, yeah. Peg. I just, I think he was a little ahead of the times. And if he had been born a few years later, uh, I think he would be, he'd still be playing in the NFL. Just the, the systems didn't quite fit a guy who couldn't move uh, back then. So I'm agree yeah. with, I agree with you there. He was set up to fail. And I just, I've always hated that because he was so elite in college. And I would have liked to have seen what he could have done with a franchise uh, with a, a proverbial head on his shoulders. Yeah. Uh, Cesar Guerrero award for the biggest heat check by a role player. How about Hubert Anyum or, or Josh yeah. Cooper? Both those guys had what double digit catches. Uh, yeah, 11 for 123 for Cooper actually led the team in receiving on the day. It was not Justin Blackman and Hubert Anium had 10 for 92. Wow. That's, uh, Anium, Anium was so good in this game. We, we forget that the year in 09 when, um, Des Bryant got suspended by the NCAA, he really stepped up as the, as the main receiver. And, uh, I think, I think I'm going to give the award though to Todd Munkin. Um, again, Ooh. far lesser, far lesser offensive coordinators, have wanted to throw the ball 60 times and not done it because Mike Gundy overruled them. That was the great thing about the dynamic between him and Mike is they they go way back. They're best friends. They're in each other's weddings. Or he was in Munkin's wedding, I believe. Maybe, don't quote me on that. But they're, they're tight. That's why he hired him. And Todd had the personality and the autonomy to turn off Gundy's mic and just do what he wanted. And so that was huge because I think – Nowadays, with Casey Dunn, I think Mike's telling him to run the ball more. And in a great quote here from Brandon Whedon, again from the Scott Wright article in the Oklahoman, uh, Munkin was known for his fast mouth and his hair on fire coaching style. But Brandon Whedon says, quote, he was calm at halftime. He, was, he wasn't flipping a lid. He told us we were going to go play up-tempo, play a little faster, and get these guys on their heels. And that's what the offense did. Again, that fast break, extension – this is what you and I have talked about for years on this podcast now, Colby. The extension of the run game by throwing out to your athletes on the outside at your receiver positions. Like Brandon Brandon called it. It's basically a kick return. You get two on two out there, go have fun. And uh, I thought Todd Munkin's adjustments at halftime were paramount. And man, I wish he would have been at OSU a lot longer than he was. Uh, we only had him for 11 and 12. But man, his his coaching acumen was on full display here. Uh, yeah, it was. Todd Monken is unbelievable. I, I so wish that he would have been around Stillwater longer. I cannot wait to see what he does this season with Lamar Jackson. I, I think that Lamar Jackson has been put in a box by the Baltimore Ravens, and he's still been unbelievable. I really hope that Todd Monken completely unleashes um, what could be a, a generationally special talent in Lamar Jackson at quarterback. Uh, that's a really good one. Munkin was unbelievable in that second half as, as bad as the first half was. And it was, they just, they didn't have it working. The initial game plan that Oklahoma state set out with Texas A&M was ready for it. They had guys in the box. Uh, I mean, they were getting to Whedon. Joseph Randall didn't have a ton of room there. Jeremy Smith uh, got the, the touchdown run early there in the third quarter, but the rushing game was not how Oklahoma state was going to win this game. At the end of the game, it, it totaled up to 35 carries for 46 yards. Now, granted, 
that was uh, including Justin Blackman's 39 yards the other way. But e- even without that, you still don't get to 100, uh, whereas Texas A&M ran the ball for 162 yards. So you needed to do it through the air, and they did. Uh, my heat check, Carson, I was going to give mine to uh, James Thomas. I know that James Thomas had several influential turnovers this season, but when you think if, if you just stopped an Oklahoma state fan outside Boone Pickett stadium, a man on the street type interview. And you said, who was your favorite player from the 2011 defense? I think you're going to have to talk to a lot of people before you get to James Thomas. And this was a big, big play. Broderick Brown reaches his arm in there, but right place at the right time. Again, this game was teetering. Texas A&M had just gone down the field and scored. And then Oklahoma state went three and out. E- even as I was rewatching it, once Texas A&M scored, for some reason in my mind, I was like, okay, is OSU going to get a first down or two here and then Blackman runs out of the end zone, or how does this happen? I'd totally forgotten that Oklahoma State had to give the ball back to Texas A&M, who then had a chance to score and win the game. James Thomas makes the big play. Uh, so he gets my Cesar Guerrero award this week. That's a great one. And I had forgotten about James Thomas, but he was huge that whole year. He he was kind of the personification of that defense forcing turnovers. Him, Jamie Blatnick. You know, guys that weren't five-star, all everything's on defense, just made a ton of plays that year. And he was he was right there with them. I think he had a big one against Kansas State, if my memory serves. I believe he had a huge, huge play in that game. So he, that's a great call by you. Um, and, and real quick, the possession prior, James Thomas, uh, he was the one. I don't know. You watched the, the coaches film, I think. I watched the full broadcast. The previous – possession he had come off the field and his right arm was hanging down like he couldn't lift his right arm up and he goes over gets a you know a a quick massage comes back out game-winning interception that's right I believe he um he ended up wearing having to wear a sleeve like the rest of the year memory serves me right too that's a great call I forgot about that actually but yeah it was a sweltering hot day that that day it was it was absolutely brutal so both teams were at 232, you're just kicking off in the dead middle of the heat. It was it was brutal. Uh how about the Central Michigan coaching F up award? What do you what are you going with? Are you going with the punts? Uh I thought about going with the punts, but since we already talked about those so ex- so extensively, I'm gonna go with a, a general philosophy here. I think it was a huge coaching F up for Texas AM to not use Ryan Tannehill's legs a little bit more. Oh, that's forgot- a good one. I had forgotten how athletic and fast Ryan Tannehill was because, you know, guys who are fast in college aren't fast in the NFL. It, it's a big part of my my Baker Mayfield theory why he hasn't succeeded in the NFL the way he did in college. In college, it's third and four, and you outrun those guys to the edge, and you pick up first down. In the NFL, it's third and four, and you try to get the edge, and now it's fourth and eight. Like, that's, that's kind of the difference with guys who are college fast versus NFL fast. And Ryan Tannehill was college fast. He had that 65-yard scoot, amended into the game for a touchdown, and then he had four rushing yards the rest of the game. And, man, I tell you what, when your offense is struggling in the second half, that's an extra little weapon that Texas A&M just had no interest in using and the whole time I'm rewatching it after he had that 65-yard touchdown run early in the game, I'm like, all right, they're going to have to account for Tannehill uh, on the ground with his legs. And they just didn't. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I, I guess this is a freebie that A&M's given us that you don't have to defend the quarterback run game when this guy can obviously move. Yeah, that's a great call. I didn't even think about the rushing ability because, yeah, I mean, for people who don't remember, Ryan Tannehill was a wide receiver the year before, and they moved him back to quarterback for this year. And a great quote from Dion Amade in this article from Scott Wright. Quote, the field and the stadium were shaking at halftime. People were talking about us being the best in the Big 12 and having a chance to be national champions. And we're losing at halftime to Texas A&M? To Ryan Tannehill? Who the year before was a freaking wide receiver? What the heck is going on? (laughs) That's an actual quote from Dion Amade. 
So that's kind of was the mentality going into the halftime because you're right, Colby. I mean, Tannehill ended up being a good quarterback. Uh, I don't mean to disparage him too much, but he had 300 yards passing in this game. He had three picks, but he had that long touchdown run for about 60 yards and a 65 yard touchdown run and for the rest of the game, like you said. So that that's a huge coaching uh, F up. I, I still got to go with the field goal on the one. And again, this made it a 10 point game. I know that, that it makes it a two score game. We all know that. But again, you punch that in for a touchdown, it is over. The game is over. And I just think you got to go for the jugular more if you're Mike Gundy. Now, it, it all worked out. This is one of the games of his career that I'm sure he looks back and says, you know what, you want to question me? It usually works out in my favor. It did. They won by one. But, man, does it drive me crazy in the process, Colby. No, you're absolutely right. And here's why I'm always such an advocate on going forward on fourth and goal from the one. It's not a guarantee. You're not, there, there's going to be times where you don't get it. But if you don't get it, what is the result? The result is their offense runs out there with, with their, I mean, they're lining up in their own end zone. Like it's still a good situation. Get your defense back out there, force a three and out. We see it all the time. Teams try to run the ball when they're on their own one. They, they spend a couple downs doing that. They try to throw one, give their punter some room, and then you're going to get it back at their 45. I just, I'm always an advocate of going for it at the opposing team's one yard line. Uh, and yes, even though it made it a 10 point game, that drove me a little bit crazy too. Uh, just for fun, Carson, I Googled Ryan Tannehill's contract. Uh, in 2020, he made $37,500,000. 24 5 in 2021, 29 mil in 22. And in 2023, Ryan Tannehill will make this season $27 million. Uh, for, for a grand total of $118 million on this contract with the Tennessee Titans. Um, Tannehill could scoot a little bit. I did not see a $118 million quarterback when I rewatched this game. No, I didn't either. I distinctly remember getting into a Twitter argument with Trent Dilfer, who thought Ryan Tannehill was just going to be the best quarterback of all time, going to be drafted, the first quarterback drafted, all that, all this nonsense. And he did get drafted pretty high, but, um, but Whedon could play circles around Ryan Tannehill, Tannehill couldn't hold Whedon's jock how he's stuck in the NFL this long I'll, I'll never understand but uh let's go uh Fran Fraschillo award for broadcast team critiques uh there is no award this this week Colby because no copy of this game on YouTube has commentary it's the weirdest thing it has the crowd noise has the uh the uh the natural sound but um no no broadcasters to talk about yeah, that's my broadcast critique. Somebody put it on YouTube with the commentary. I watched this game for three hours with no commentary, <laughs> no no context as to what's happening. You watched the coach's film and got through it quick. I spent three hours watching this thing on YouTube, just basically on mute. It was uh, it was a long watch. Yeah, long watch. I watched the, the there's a cut up for about twenty minutes if you just want to watch the plays. That's what I went with. But um, but I would still encourage people to watch. You get much more context and. Uh, Maybe we'll, and shout out to Big Dave, whoever you are, who puts all the OSU games in in their entirety onto YouTube. Uh, we're going to be using Big Dave's YouTube channel for for most of these episodes. So shout out to Big Dave. Uh, moment where Squinky lived. How uh, about Blackman fumble? <laughs> how about the Blackman fumble? Is that not if Squinky was? Is is there a? This might be Apex Mountain, which we'll get to. But is this Apex Mountain for Squinky? I mean, I, obviously the result didn't count, yeah. but but in terms of just one singular play, is no. this, this the most, most squinky thing you've ever seen? No, I don't think it is. I can think of one off the top of my head that's squinkier. What's that? Uh, Justin Gilbert dropped that interception, Carson. Oh, yeah. I still think Mike should have challenged that, though. 
Uh, either way, it is for me the squinkiest squinky that oh, ever. Squinkied. You're right. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm sad. I know. Uh, I am too. How about moment squinky died? Let's uh, let's bring this back around. Which which was the moment for you? I didn't have squinky dying until that last interception by James Thomas. E- even until then, it's like okay, Texas A&M went down and scored when you're up ten. You go three and out. You give it back to him with two minutes left. And as an Oklahoma State fan. I mean, we're all sitting there watching that live in 2011 thinking, is this really about to happen? Like, Blackman drops it going into the end zone. You should have had this game wrapped up. You should be blowing this team out. You're getting all these turnovers, and this is how it's going to go down. And then, boom, James Thomas gets the interception. Squinky is dead. Yep, I got to go with Thomas' pick. That was was the exclamation point. That's what I'm going with, too. Best unintentional comedy moment. Uh, I've got one. How about when Justin Blackman scores the touchdown to make it 20-17? to The officials both kind of look at each other and then do incomplete. And Justin Blackman is like beside himself. He literally starts screaming at them. Like, what are you talking about? They show the replay, Colby. He gets two and a half feet in in bounds in the corner of the end zone. Not not one, not two. He does like a stutter step. I mean, he gets the NFL thought he got too many feet in bounds. I don't know what these refs were looking at, but the looks on their faces was just priceless. And Justin Blackman, like after they finally call, he's like, yeah, he like puts his hands up. Like, yeah, of course it was a touchdown. I got, I got two and a half feet in here, Colby. Uh, yeah. I, in my notes, I wrote third quarter, seven thirty three. Blackman TD was an obvious TD. That, that's what <laughs> I wrote. It's he, he had the ball for so long. And then well, after he scored the touchdown, he gets shoved in the back. He still holds on to the ball until he hits the ground. And then the ball pops out, but it didn't matter. He'd already scored. And, um, on replay, I, I mean, they went back and replayed it, gave him the touchdown. Of course, the crowd booed. Uh, that's what crowds do. But, yes, that that to me was an obvious one. Uh, mine is also Justin Blackman related. Mine was the camera shot in the offensive coach's box when Justin Blackman fumbled out of the back of the end zone. That was some unintentional comedy. The pure elation on these coaches. I mean, high fives were already being passed out. And then <laughs> it's like all of a sudden they see the ball go. And it's this look of shock and confusion. And did that just happen? Um, the the extremes of facial expressions in that coach's box was pure unintentional comedy. Yeah, that's fantastic. And they were just staring straight in the sun the whole game. But they were, but they were beat about that point. Uh, any other funny unintentional comedy moments before we move on? Uh, nope, I think I'm good there. How about probably unanswerable questions? Um, for me, the, the Glenn Spencer effect, I think, was real in the first half. Uh, the defense didn't quite seem all together. Like that, that that first half, Colby, did we ever see the 2011 defense just get run up and down the field like that? I don't I don't think we did. So I, I think an unanswerable question there was how much did the Glenn Spencer uh, situation with his family and his dying wife, how much did that affect them in the first half? Because it, it sure it sure seemed they got like they got things corrected in the second half. Yeah, I think that there was probably a little bit of that. I, I don't know if there was any lingering effects from playing football in the middle of the night the week before. Uh, and then you got the Glenn Spencer effect as well, which I'm sure was was emotional for um, everyone around that. You know, when, when somebody that you love loses somebody that they love, you, you feel that uh, and you feel that for them. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that was a big one. My unanswerable question that I wrote here, Carson, is what could Justin Blackman have been? Um, I pulled mm. up some box scores from his first couple years, his only couple years in the NFL. Year one, he has a box score against Houston in a game that Jacksonville lost, by the way, 
Justin Blackman has seven catches for 236 yards and a touchdown in the NFL. By the way, this is not against your modern-day Houston Texans. This is a Houston Texans team that moved to 9-1 and one with this victory with Matt Schaub at quarterback. Do you know who Justin Blackman's quarterback was when he had 236 yards receiving in an NFL game? Was it Matt Jones, the former receiver from Arkansas? It was not. It was none other than Chad Henney. Who was oh, still, yeah, who was still throwing to him the next year when Justin Blackman went into Denver, a game that again, Jacksonville lost, and Justin Blackman had 14 catches for 190 yards My on, 20, gosh. On, on 20 targets. He just the dude was an absolute beast. Uh, and he just he, he dealt with addiction issues and uh and that stuff a lot of people go through, and you have a lot of sympathy uh for people in those situations, but um, glad to see Justin Blackman doing better. It was good to see him in Stillwater last year as they celebrated that team. I, I hope to see more of him in Stillwater because the Oklahoma State faithful still love, love, love Justin Blackman. Uh, but it would have been amazing to see what, what he could have done with a 10-year NFL career. Yeah, it's it's sad. And, and people, it's, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I've said this to many folks before when his name's come up and like, oh, he was a bust in the NFL. I was like, no, 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 he was not a bust. Like sure, he he got in trouble off the field and he had he had personal issues, but when he was on the field, he was still an absolute monster. I mean, how many how many receivers in the history of the NFL have a, have a receiving game with 230 yards? Not very many. I can answer that right now. Not very many. And he he was so dominant, Colby. He had at least 100 yards and a touchdown in every game he played this year in 2011. I think he did it in 2010 as well. I think both those two years, every game he played. He had at least 100 yards and at least a touchdown. And if that's not the best receiver in college football history, the most dominant player I've seen in my lifetime, I don't know what is. Uh, I wasn't old enough for Barry Sanders, but it was like Barry Sanders playing wide receiver. Uh, So that's a great unanswerable question. Uh, And it kind of leads into my hottest retroactive take that I wish I had in the moment. The Whedon to Blackman thing was amazing. I loved the campaign. The Whedon to Blackman hashtag was great. I wish I had made a bigger deal that Justin Blackman was the best player in college football that year. You just go back and look at all the numbers. And again, this is in the midst of quarterbacks winning every single year. I think they split votes from each other, but I I kind of wish myself in Oklahoma state had the take of let's throw everything we've got at Justin Blackman for Heisman because it's, to win two Bolitnikovs, I mean, there's voter fatigue with those awards. There, there was no debate that he was the best receiver in college football. And I don't think there's really a debate that he was the best player on Oklahoma State's team that year. I, I love Brandon. He and I have, have been friends since this year. He threw for 400 yards in this game. He, he's amazing. There, there's nothing more you can say than Brandon Whedon was an amazing player. But Justin Blackman's one of the best players in the last 25 years. And I think OSU, I, I wish I had that take then, Colby, that he should be the guy they're pushing for Heisman. Uh, we are very much on the same page. So, so I wrote down, I wish I would have had the take at the time. And if I would have had this take at the time, I likely would have been accused of being uh, a homer and prisoner of the moment, whereas now we might just get accused of being homers. I wish I would have had the take at the time that we are watching the greatest receiver in the history of college football. I, I just... I don't think at the time I, I had elevated him to that stature because you're just watching it as it happens. You're like, this is a fun team. There's a fun offense. This is a great receiver. And then it's done, and you look back at it, and it's like, no, no, no. That's as good as the receiver position can and has ever been played at the collegiate level. 
Uh, and again, I, I don't think that I took it for granted. I don't think the Oklahoma State fan base took it for granted. But at the time, I still don't think that I, I acknowledged and processed. We are watching the highest level of receiver play at this level of football ever. Um, and that's special. That's really special. I, to, for my money, best receiver, best running back ever in the history of college football, both played at Oklahoma State. Uh, and that is special, and that's something to take a lot of pride in. Absolutely. I, I think that's certainly a case you could make, and I would agree with it. Mm, Apex Mountain, whose person's, which person's career peaked at this exact moment? Uh, Hubert Anyum candidate. I mean, this had to be a career high in receptions and yards for him. Uh, Josh Cooper, no. Ryan Tannehill, no. He's still getting paid. Uh, James Thomas, maybe, but again, I think, I believe he had much bigger moments, uh, the rest of the way, certainly at that Kansas state game in Stillwater. Um, anybody, anybody come to mind? Apex mountain for, um, Todd Munkin. No, Bill Young. No, I was uh, looking at the game logs for Hubert Anium to see if this was his highest receiving output of his career. And it was not, but I'm still going to give it to Hubert Anium because, his catches and yards in this game were more impactful. In the 2009 season, he had 10 for 119 and a touchdown against Missouri in October. It was a 33-17 to 17 win. Um, that's a game that you're winning regardless, and that's a great performance. But this was one that you needed some of those first downs that he got, some of that chain moving that he did. So I'll, I'll go Hubert and Annium uh, peaked here with his, his double-digit catches, which he only did twice in his career, this game against A&M and 09 against Missouri. I I think that's the right call. I'm also going to throw out there OSU and A&M. This is Apex Mountain for for that mini rivalry. I mean, the year before was 2010, which was a huge comeback. Dan Bailey kicking a last-second field goal. Uh, you had the 2009 comeback when Whedon the Blackman was born against Colorado. Or wait, that's that's Colorado. Never mind. Was A&M? Yeah, A&M was the last-second game with Dan Bailey on Thursday night. I think they were wearing all black. Uh, you had a comeback in that game. You had the 2011 game. Uh Apex Mountain for for sending the Aggies off to because I think they went to the SEC after this year. So I think we got to go Apex Mountain OSU versus A and M. It's it always fun beating the Aggies, wasn't it? Uh, it was always fun beating. For whatever reason, A and M fans are just annoying. Maybe it's because they're just so different and weird that um that that the rest of us just view them as annoying. But yeah, Oklahoma State. Uh, one guy who was this? This was uh Drew Hayes at at OSU Drew Hayes. WSU tweeted us, said that he was at this game, and he sent a picture of him and his buddy, and they're wearing shirts that say, it's no secret in orange and black, and SEC in secret is in all caps. Uh, yeah, A&M was bolting for the SEC. Everybody knew it, and uh, this was a good way to tell him to kick rocks. Yep, that's a great one. Um, just the 2011 season, there's so much more to happen in this year. It's hard to give anybody Apex Mountain for this game, but those are, those are two good winners for us. Uh, who won the game? Who's your MVP? Uh, my MVP, Carson, I, I couldn't just pick one guy. I, I'm a fence sitter. I want to give too many guys credit. So I did an offensive MVP and a defensive MVP. Offensive MVP goes to Brandon Whedon for what I said earlier. This game, it was about turnovers, big time. And Brandon Whedon aired it out 60 times and never put it in harm's way. That is so underrated whenever you look at, at this game and Tannehill with his three picks and the fumble across the middle. Brandon Whedon was so good, and and yes, the age, the maturity, all that plays into it. He just didn't turn the ball over. He was very careful with the football, uh, and that was huge for Oklahoma State. So Brandon Whedon gets my offensive MVP. Do you know how many receivers he completed a pass to off the top of your head? In this game? Mm-hmm. Uh, double digits, probably 10? 11. Yeah. 
11 different receivers. Joe Randall, Justin Horton, Isaiah Anderson, Michael Harrison, Kai Staley, Tracy Moore, Colton Shelf, Josh Stewart, <laughs> Hubert Anyam, Justin Blackman, Josh Cooper. So, uh, yeah, we had a Josh Stewart sighting. We had a Colton Shelf sighting. Not Apex Mountain for him. We all remember the Fiesta Bowl. But, man, Colby, 11, 11 receivers. Who's your um, defensive MVP? I'm, I'm still a little mad at Colton Shelf uh, in the Fiesta Bowl. He went down at the one-yard line. If he scores, I hit my parlay. Eh, uh, they should have given it to him. Ah, they should have given it to him. I agree. Um, my defensive MVP was Broderick Brown. His just his bulldog mentality, his energy, and I, I mean, when he jumped in front and made that diving interception, that's as the comeback was being mounted. And then late in the game, when A and M was trying to go score, he makes the play, gets his arm in, and breaks it up before James Thomas picks it. Uh, so defensive MVP, I went Broderick Brown. Those are good ones. You probably don't. You probably don't see this coming. My MVP is Todd Munkin. I knew you were going to say Todd Munkin after the way you've been talking. I mean, this game is just, it's as if I was handed the Xbox controller. We're not running the football up the gut for two yards. We're not running it off tackle. We're getting the shotgun and we're going to air it out. And again, as great as Whedon and Blackman were, and they were unbelievable in this game, it's not possible without Todd Munkin pulling the strings, without him calling the plays, realizing the mismatches on the outside at halftime, making those adjustments. it It's one of the most epic offensive coordinator halves I've ever seen. I mean, that offense doesn't even look remotely the same from the first half to the second. And very few coaches are willing to admit defeat. That's the great thing about Todd Munkin, too. He was so honest about everything, even his own faults. He knew it wasn't working, and he adapted and flipped it. And... Look, you got to give Whedon Blackman credit. You got to give Mike Gundy credit. Uh, there's a lot of credit to go around. But for me, the way this game played out with the second half needing to be what it was, maybe I'm giving too much credit here. And maybe it's nostalgia because how much how great Todd Munkin is. But I don't think any of this is possible without him. So he's my MVP. I, I don't think you are giving too much credit to him. If if Justin Blackman does not bank one off his off his thigh out of bounds and at the end of the game, if Blackman either extends the ball over the goal line or Gundy decides to go from it from the half-yard line and they presumably punch it in, if those things happen, which is not unreasonable to think that both of those possessions should have ended in touchdowns, this would have been a 38-point half for Todd Munkin. A 38-point half on the road at Kyle Field. I, I don't think you're crazy for that at all. Yep, that's a good one. Uh, yep, so I was there. Uh, the, the scene afterwards, uh, those guys kind of knew what they had. As a team, they kind of knew the run they were they were about to go on. Uh, this this group was unique, Colby. They had some some interesting characters on it, and and what they had the most, what, what I always remember about the 2011 team, is none of them were were afraid to be themselves, and that, that's from top to bottom. Blackman wasn't wasn't a real talkative guy. Uh, Whedon would would hold court with the media for an hour if we wanted, uh, but the thing they all had in common was they had this really kind of quiet confidence about them. When they were talking about whether it's a game, whether it's an opponent opponent coming up, they weren't cocky. They just kind of had this like era, this this aura of just kind of knowing. They they just kind of knew how good they were. They knew if they showed up on Saturday and played as well as they were expecting to, nobody was going to beat them. Nobody. And it took a freak, freak, horrible tragedy, a freak game is what I meant to say, and a, and a horrible tragedy on top of it in Iowa State. Uh, just a weird night 
that derailed a team that I thought was the best team in the country that year. I still believe that. If they had gotten to play LSU, which was their right, in my opinion, I think they, I don't know, blow them off the field's the right word, but I, I'm very confident they win that game. I'll go to my grave believing that. So for my mind, Colby, this team was worthy of a national championship. They proved that by going and beating Stanford as well. But the thing that sticks out with me covering this team, Colby, was that quiet confidence and that just that knowing look they all kind of had on their eye in their eyes is what what still sticks with me today here in 2023. Yeah, and they carried that around campus. It, it was um, they were loose. That they just they knew that they had it. They knew that they had the coaches. They knew that they had the guys. They knew that they had the high end talent and the role players and that quiet confidence. They carried it around campus. And and I'm with you. I still think. Um, and obviously when we're talking about winning or, lo- winning or losing a football game, there's no comparison in, in that and, and the loss of, of lives, right? Um, but so I hope everyone takes this in the context of Oklahoma State football. Um, that, that plane crash that day, it just, it shook everybody. I, I woke up to the news that morning, you go out on campus and it's like nobody was talking to each other. It was cold and dreary. Um, it was quiet. It was, it was a weird day. And they have to go on the road and, and try to carry that same mindset in there. And they just didn't. They, they were just, they were flat. Um, and it was a, a horrible, horrible tragedy um, that also I think had a huge impact on this football team and this football season and the legacy of this football program. Uh, because, yeah, like you said, I, I think they're much more deserving of a 2011 banner hanging in that end zone than a 1945 banner. So, um, but all in all, this was a fun rewatch. I'll say that, Carson. I'll say this. Where do you rank this? We can end on this. Where do you rank this in terms of most fun games of 2011? Because as fun as this game was, I think I've got it fourth. See, and I think I know what you're going to say. You're going to put OU1. Nope. Um Fiesta Bowl one? Nope. No. That Kansas State game is the most fun football game I've ever been to in my life. See, and I wasn't I wasn't at that game either. I was in Norman that week because that Norman game was on ABC. But the reason I don't like the Kansas State game as much and why I like this game more is there were real stakes in that K-State game. I mean, it, things were looking up. I mean, they had Tech and Iowa State and then OU. I mean, you could almost start to taste a Big 12 championship. You could almost start to envision a BCS title game. So I didn't enjoy the back and forth at all at K-State. I was like, this is this is the end of the season. They're going to lose. This is uh, I just I was a wreck that game. I, I, I don't I don't even want to rewatch that one. It, it, it makes me too nervous. I, I will say maybe it was a uh, maybe I jumped the gun there saying most fun game of my life because that might actually go to 2021 Bedlam with, with everything that surrounded that. But uh, yeah, the Kansas state game was really fun. The OU game uh, probably number two for me That's the first game I ever went to uh, with my, at the time she was my brand new girlfriend and she's now my wife. Um, that was the first game we went together, got, got to go on the field, do all that fun stuff. And then Fiesta Bowl, probably three. And then A&M, probably four. And I think the reason I have to put it at four is because the first half, Carson, was such a snoozer. So bad. That's true. That that definitely hurts the rewatchability. But um, but no, this was great, Colby. Uh, appreciate it. Again, 2011 team, uh, best, best of my lifetime and certainly worthy of a national championship. And they've won the school's lone Big 12 title. So, um Colby, this was fun, man. Let's uh, we'll we'll get back with you next week. 
Yep, this was a blast. Uh, Ricky Fowler in contention this week. Everybody go watch and have a great weekend. Be safe around the 4th. Uh, don't drink and drive, all that good stuff. Everybody be safe. Have a great long weekend, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. As always, go Pokes.